I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. Fantastic. Still Bill is our speaker this morning from Jamaica Presentation, and it is my honor, my honor to introduce Still Bill. And this morning, um, we'll hear Still Bill speak for about 45 minutes on their experience, strength, and hope, and what they were, or what they were like, what happened, and what they are like today as a result of the program of action found in the 12 Steps of Alcohol Licks Anonymous. We, AA Solution Seekers, would like to welcome Still Bill from Jamaica Presentation Home Group. Good morning, everyone. My name is Still Bill. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I'd like to thank God, first of all, for helping me to live another day sober. And I'd like to thank everyone present here as well that I'm looking at in the squares for helping me to stay sober as well, one day at a time. Yes, it's a great day. I want to thank member from Jamaica presentation, Tony B, for waking me up and reminding me that I did have this uh, particular uh, assignment this morning. Yes, I often say that we are heading into the second phase of what many of us come to know as hurricane season. Yes, we've already finished with the first phase being Thanksgiving. Now we're going through that second phase, which extends to the third phase being New Year's for an entire week. Yes, once upon a time when I was working before I retired, I would take a week off from work between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, that was an extended period of time for me to drink. That's exactly what it was. Because uh, we see alcohol, of course, as a celebratory beverage, something that's supposed to signal that uh, we are in the midst of, quote, unquote, good times. And uh, we want to keep the good times rolling. Problem is, alcohol takes us to a certain peak emotionally, then it kind of drops us off, leaves us hanging. So that's the reason why we come here, because uh, when alcohol stops working the way it initially did, well, we kind of have to dig in to figure out what's going on. In a lot of cases, we may go to rehab We'll go to look for some kind of help or advice, but so many of us stay in denial for so long. I often say that I was one of the lucky ones. Um, I was able to look down and see the floor coming up, so to speak. Yes, that was a little bit of insight that I had. The ability to see the floor coming up. So uh, I didn't have to hit a, a seriously devastating bottom whereby I lost a whole lot of stuff. For me, um, well, it was like saying goodbye to an old friend. But during my phases of wrestling with my drinking problem, as I'll call it, prior to coming into the rooms of AA, um, I, I, I did a few things on my own. I had executed my own program due to my... Uh, Great wisdom, you see. I was in college when I studied 
psychology. I learned a few things about addiction, addictive behavior, some of the drugs. And I actually did apply some of that prior to coming into the rooms in addressing my problem drinking. So what I did was I had written some things down on a piece of paper that would remind me of the reasons why I needed to stop drinking, highlighting the problems that it was causing, some of the worst things that I anticipated could happen as a result of me continuing to drink. And I would read that piece of paper a couple, couple of times a week. And for a while there, it really, really did put aside the obsession and the compulsion to continue drinking. But I would soon get to a point whereby I figured, well, I don't need to read this anymore. Put it aside. And perhaps after a few months, or maybe even a year or so, I'd get to a point where I'd say, hmm, you know, maybe a drink is not such a bad idea. Not realizing that I had set myself up to, in a manner of speaking, go back out, as we often say when people do relapse. I was setting myself up for that by not reminding myself of the importance of the devastation my drinking would ultimately or could ultimately cause to me. So picked up. And of course, nothing drastic or horrendous happened during the first encounter with me picking up. But over time, as I continued on thinking that I was safe, I was consuming more and more and more and more during each session, not realizing that uh, this is the way people like me drink. You know, I have this disease, you know, this, this thing here, this, this, this obsession to consume more and more because I'm an alcoholic. Now, I didn't realize that until I actually came into the rooms of AA in 2014. Interestingly enough, in about 2000, no, it was 2009 that I came into the rooms. Yes, yeah, I have 14 years, so I got those numbers mixed up. 2009, I came in. In 2004, I, uh, 2004, I, I recall calling one of the AA hotlines and I spoke to a guy on the phone and I said, well, I'd like to know a little bit about what goes on there at AA. He said, well, we teach you how not to drink here. I said, oh, my goodness, click. See, at that point in time, I was not ready to stop drinking. What I was looking for was more drinking buddies, actually. People that could teach me how to drink responsibly and respectfully, if there is such a thing. You know, so many of us have come to learn and realize that, well, that's probably not to be, at least for, not for people like me, you see. So I had to stay out there another five years, uh, banging my head up against the wall, going through these periods of abstinence, then heavy drinking, realizing that, oh, wow, I'm making a mess of things again. And um, this went on once again 
for approximately five years before I decided to surrender. My determining that it was important for me to surrender at the time that I did had to do with what led to my last stroke. I was uh, on an extended period of days from my job, approximately eight days, as a matter of fact. And I said to myself, I'm going to go back to my old neighborhood and uh, have a drink with this guy that I used to drink with. He was an older fella. He came up to my apartment. And I would always have to make sure that the bottle that I had there, whether it be a fifth or a quart, a liter or whatever, I'd always have to make sure that it was only at least halfway empty already, because this is the type of guy, the way he drank, he wouldn't leave until the bottle was entire, entirely empty. So being the type of drinker he was, you know, well, didn't want to throw the guy out. The bottle's got to be, as I said, empty. And we would drink that bottle until, until it was empty and he would stagger on back to his apartment. Anyway, what I did, at this particular juncture was I invited him down to my car. I drove I drove over there after purchasing two pints of Bacardi rum. Purchased these two pints of Bacardi one rum. We finished the first bottle and I had one more in the car that I decided that I'm gonna drink this with my cousin who lives in uh, Brownsville, New York. First uh, place that I was at was actually East New York, which is uh, about two miles from uh, Brownsville. Uh, by the time I had a few drinks with my cousin in Brownsville, I was already pretty, you know, bottle already because it was early. It was relatively early in the day, maybe one or two in the afternoon, something like that. And uh, then she decided to pull out some marijuana as we were drinking. And I had gotten to a point in which I decided, oh, I got to get out of here. Which was, often, which was oftentimes something that I did. I, once I got to a certain point, feeling that things were getting a little out of hand, you know, I recognized it. Let me get out of here, whether or not I finished this bottle with her or not. So I pr proceeded to leave, get behind the wheel, and drive my car back to Queens. That was the point at which I'm driving pretty much like this, covering one eye with the hand, and I can, I'm seeing double essentially. So that, so that's the reason why uh, uh, I had to cover one eye up because once again, I'm seeing double. So I managed to make it all the way back to my apartment in Queens, driving as cautiously as I could. You would think that I'd have the good sense to pull over to the side and uh, try to sober up a little bit, maybe have a little coffee, maybe take a little rest. But that was not to be. I made it back safely enough. But of course, getting there, I had that horrendous toilet bowl hugging experience. So I'm kneeling in front of the porcelain throne here. But I couldn't get this alcohol to come up out of my system, out of my system after poisoning myself. You know, so I said, okay, I'm just gonna lay down and sleep it off, supposedly. What happened was the bed started spinning. Yeah, yeah, right. we can all relate to that sensation, right? When the alcohol more or less rushes to your head and you're in a flat position, lying down on the floor or bed. Well, that wasn't working for me at the time. So what I what I decided to do was to 
go sit in my lounge chair in the living room. Between waking up from my slumber, I walk to the bathroom and allow the uh, alcohol to pass through my kidneys and bladder. Over time, uh, I've managed to get myself a nice, deep, horrendous <laughs> hangover type sleep. So after waking up, that was the point at which I said, you know, I can't keep doing this. I'm doing the same thing over and over and getting the same result. You know, I didn't see myself or I didn't understand or maybe perhaps I was coming to terms with the fact that I was caught up in some sort of loop with respect to my drinking. In other words, uh, I'd have these long periods of abstinence from alcohol. Then eventually I would be called back to the alcohol. Now the way I was called back on numerous occasions, which I didn't understand, actually I was being tricked by my own subconscious. I would have these drunk dreams during those periods of time in which I was being called back to the alcohol. And I, I didn't take it seriously at the time. I have them rarely now that I'm in sobriety, seriously. Still have them now and then. But now, but now they, they really, really disturb me because I oftentimes find myself waking up in somewhat of a cold sweat, you know, afraid and angry over the fact that I broke my sobriety, only to realize that, well, it was just a dream, shall I say, a nightmare, because uh, my sobriety is so important to me now in light of what I've come to see can and ultimately will happen as a result of me continuing to drink. So once again, constantly being called back to the alcohol during my drunk dreams prior to coming into the rooms was one of the main things that kept me out there. This, this thing about drinking alcohol obviously is deep within my subconscious. I've been doing it since I was 14 years old. So, yeah, since I was 14. Anyway, fast forwarding a little bit again, uh, coming to terms with the fact that I can't do this alone, I decided to let me find out how you folks do it here. In other words, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, let me check that out. So, Got on the computer, uh, checked for a few of the local area uh, AA meetings, and I made my first AA meeting at a meeting called Freshway. As a matter of fact, uh, Freshway, which meets at Christ the King Church, is where uh, people in my section of Queens, called the Scenic, Southeast New York, are going to be having a share this Christmas. Actually, it's going to last between Christmas and New Year's. And those of you who are, who are familiar with this area, you probably have some knowledge of it already. I'm sure you've probably heard about it in your secretary reports. Um, so that was the first place that I made an AA meeting. And this was in August of 2009. This uh, turned out to be a revelation for me. Uh, when I came in uh, after a couple of meetings, I did eventually get a sponsor. 
well, not at that meeting. It was at that meeting that I learned about the meeting that I'm in closest contact with now, which happens to be Jamaica Presentation, which is in a closer proximity to where I actually live. It was at that meeting that I got a sponsor and uh, I learned about uh, alcohol. I learned about alcoholism and I learned that it was me. Yeah, I was the alcoholic. And uh, I recall how at one point in time I scoffed at hearing that term. Me, alcoholic? Well, I'm just like everybody else out there. You know, I don't like to hear that because I associated that term alcoholic with the low bottom drunk bum in the street, which, which Bill W. actually had become to a degree. Yeah, he had become one of those difficult cases. And uh, fortunately, I had not headed quite to that degree where I experienced so many losses. But uh, I accepted the fact that, yeah, I was on the way there. You know, I was the veil of denial was starting to be removed. And it's interesting that I've come to note that today that term alcohol, alcoholic is more or less being uh sidestep by some of the professionals that deal with people who have serious drinking problems. They, because, you know, it's, it's still stigmatized to a degree. And uh, they'll use a term perhaps like uh, uh, this individual is suffering from alcohol use disorder. Hmm. Okay, that's a nice way to clean it up a, a little bit. Or they'll say, well, this individual is alcohol dependent. Yes. Well, ever since I've come into the rooms in 2014, you know, the main term that I've heard, of course, is that we are alcoholics, you know, which um, important for us to ultimately come to terms with. But what the professionals that work with the alcoholics are doing is, is okay, too, because um, so many of us are still in denial regarding this seri the seriousness of what this is. This is a is a disease. Prior to it be, being or coming to be known as a disease as it is, it was seriously stigmatized. You know, once again, you had people like Bill W and what he went through and struggling with his uh, effect, the degree to which he was affected by this particular malady. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, something that Causes a lot of people to be cast aside into sanitariums, crazy houses, and, and what have you. That, uh, it, it absolutely uh, brings about serious uh, behavior problems, no doubt, disrupting families, uh, neighborhoods, entire communities, in fact. So, no doubt, uh, there's something working on a deep psychological level with respect to this particular disease and that uh, in spite of the fact that we recognize it is injurious, we're still compelled to do it over and over again. And as it states in the uh, big book, uh, more, the subject more about alcoholism, there's so many of us that are, are not ready to come to terms with the fact that, uh, yeah, ultimately, this is what we suffer from. And it's pretty much in the same way as 
a disease like diabetes has been characterized. Now, I've had prostate cancer going back to 2016 and had my prostate removed and certain uh, protocols that I have to follow to make sure that cancer does not come back. And I say that I am in remission of cancer. But that also happens to be the case with this disease of alcoholism. I can say that I am recovering, but I don't say that I'm recovered because I wouldn't want anyone, especially a newcomer, to think that I'm suggesting that I'm cured. No. No, no, I'm not cured of this uh, situation. I'm not cured of this particular malady. This is something that in which I will always need treatment for in the same sense that I'll need to prepare and do some form of treatment or other for cancer in order to keep it at bay. So what do I do? Well, I make meetings. I do service. Talk to another alcoholic, talk to the sponsor. And these, these are the things that uh, I, I've found to be necessary for people like me to remain right-sized. I was just at a funeral this past Tuesday, as a matter of fact. Nice gentleman, uh, one of the local neighbors from where I used to live. I recall he always had that silly smile on his face that a lot of drinkers have. He wasn't one of those disruptive type drinkers. But uh, from what I know of him, there was rarely a time in which he was not drinking. So I regret to say, or I even regret to seriously think that he was one of the people who has died from this disease. But from what I've known, from what I've known of him, I would say that it is true. Yes, yeah, he's one of the people who, in my opinion, has succumbed to the disease of alcoholism. So, uh, yes, a sponsor, a sponsor is someone who can more or less mentor you, take you by the hand in a one-on-one -on -one relationship and provide for you some guidance, particularly with regard to going through the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. This, this can be a little bit of a grueling process, you know, going back to school in a manner of speaking. You know, that's, that's, that's ultimately what we're doing with respect to coming into the rooms. You know, we're getting a real education on uh, what alcohol has done to us. And a lot of, there's a lot of introspection involved. In other words, looking at ourselves and looking at what we have become as a result of going through the steps. And of course, the first step is to, to acknowledge that uh, we do have a serious problem and surrender to alcohol in a sense by acknowledging that yes, that we are powerless. You know, that's not a lot, that's not easy for a lot of people to do, I understand. And some people, they'll scoff at the notion of being powerless. And uh, unfortunately, alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work for everyone. We do gather that if you work the program appropriately, if you put some serious, genuine effort into working the program, you can come to realize that there are some important elements here, some important tools here 
to help you stay right size and hold on to your sobriety. Life shows up. There are many of us here who have experienced trauma, death of loved ones, family, parents, and uh, other significant others, lost jobs. Once again, life showing up and we don't drink. It's not the easiest thing for those of us who've been struggling. I understand I have a young man who I'm trying to help now. And uh, I'm being patient as fan. You know, the main thing is patience. You know, a lot of us have to work through the three Ds, denial, defiance, and delusion. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, not the easiest thing to do. Not the easiest thing to do at all, in my opinion. I've come to realize that uh, prior to me coming into the rooms once again in 2009, uh, I went through my own phases of, of that. Let me go back to some of my early beginnings. Most of us start out, uh, take for instance, with alcohol being served in the family before they even drank. That happened to be the case with me. My dad was a drinker in the family, the main drinker. He was, uh, let's see, he, I would characterize my dad as having been a uh, functional alcohol. Functional alcoholic is a term that is used with a lot of folks that maintain the job and they go to work every day, but perhaps throughout the week or even during the weekend, that's the time in which alcohol takes its effect on these individuals. Because after all, you know, worked hard all week, we deserve the drink. Interestingly enough, I became a lot like my dad in many respects. You know, my dad, uh, he uh, was not a, a violent drunk, not an angry, angry drunk. He was uh, a sloppy drunk. You know, he'd have a few drinks, start slurring his words, staggering around his house, and eventually my mother would put him to bed. But uh, by the time I was 14, I'm hanging out with the fellas. And uh, the thought comes to mind to me that, uh, you know, maybe, hmm, let me see what these guys are doing. So we go out to a discotheque party and uh, someone pulls out a pint of some some sort of whiskey. I think it was old granddad, old crow maybe. Anyway, some kind of old rock gut. And it got passed around in my direction. Took one or two swigs. I don't recall anything memorable or extraordinary taking place right then and there. But anyway, I had arrived. You know, this was at the age of 14. It was later that I soon, it was later that I soon came to know the effects of alcohol to a greater degree. And, um, yeah, it carried on. Now, by the time I was 16, I was thoroughly in my cups, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm in 11th grade in high school. Alcohol is, is, has become something that I've become a bit dependent on. I was a musician. Uh, I was uh, in the senior band in high school from my freshman to, to my senior year, playing the, south, playing the saxophone. 
I was pretty good, matter of fact. Uh, I was on my way, in some respects, to a career in music, which regretfully, well, I, I should I, perhaps I shouldn't say that. Uh, what I'm thinking of now is the fact that playing j jazz as a musician would have kept me really steep in uh, the alcohol culture. That's pretty much the case when it comes to, as I've come to learn over time, that's pretty much the case when it comes to jazz musicians, which was what I was aspiring to be. Uh, so as it turns out, uh, drinking continued on throughout my high school years. I graduated high school by the skin of my tooth I almost didn't graduate. I thought I was going to have to go to summer school during the end of my senior year in order to get my diploma. <clears throat> Fortunately, I did get my diploma. Continued on with my drinking. I went to a community college, Queensboro Community College, in fact, here in New York City. Uh, and uh, shortly after that, after getting into my first and second year of college, Uncle Sam comes knocking. Uncle Sam has another job for me. He's to send me off to Vietnam. But in the meantime, I'm enjoying my alcohol. So why is Uncle Sam bothering me, wanting to send me away to Vietnam to fight a war over there? When I'm over here in college, enjoying this wonderful experience. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm pretty much flunking out of college because of the alcohol and the smoking marijuana. But, uh, Point is, you know, why is Uncle Sam messing with me? So what I ultimately did was I transferred from the school that I was at, and I went to the school out in Ohio where my brother was going to school, Wilberforce University. And it was there that I got a draft counselor. This, this bit of the story is a bit of a diversion from my drinking, but it very much involves my drinking. Because the diversion that I had did cause me to focus on things other than alcohol for a while, for a while. I got a draft counselor when I was over in Ohio. And I managed to get Uncle Sam off my back. My draft, my draft status was changed from uh, someone who was going to be immediately inducted to someone who was determined to be a physical reject. My, my physical x-rays were reviewed. It, my issues with back pain were brought to the fore and it was determined that, yeah, I have this curvature of the spine, this, this, this scoliosis thing going here that uh, could cause some physical problems for me. So to that extent, I managed to get out of going to the draft. Now, I know, you know, some people will view that with some degree of skepticism and opposition, and opposition towards my quote unquote patriotism. But, you know, we have some interesting ideas now about that particular war. Yeah, yeah it was a shame. Anyway, after I got Uncle Sam off of my back, uh, I went back to my drinking. I hadn't mentioned all during that process, 
I had good grades at that school that I transferred to. This was Global Force University. And uh, after getting Uncle Sam off my back, you know, I went back to the dream. Oh, by the way, also, I, you know, picked up a wife while I was out there in Ohio. And uh, ultimately, the marriage broke up. And I came back to New York City and resumed much of my behavior from before. Got a job back in New York City, continuing with, continuing with the drinking and on until approximately 2009, when I finally made it into the rooms. And all during that, all between that period, there was drinking. There was not drinking. There was more drinking. And then there was a stop to the, to that drink. Once again, this was not sobriety. This was simply abstinence. There's so much more involved with sobriety than just not drinking. One of the great things that I've come to understand about being in the rooms of AA is that it, we're about character building here. And coming into the rooms of AA about helping us to come to terms with some of our past behavior, at least that which we can remember, you know, because so much of the bad behavior went on while we were in a blackout. And uh, oftentimes we need some people that we were in a company of during the time that we were joined, doing that drinking. We need some people to remind us. But on another level, most of us know, most of us know that we were real assholes, idiots in our drinking career. So it's, it's not too hard for us to cautiously question some people or simply make a an out-and-out admission to the fact that, well, we have been bad actors. Yes, yes. So that's why making an, an amends is extremely important in character building and confronting some of our past behavior. And uh, it's been said, it's been very much thought that this is the kind of thing that would hopefully prevent us, prevent us from going back to the old behavior. That's why making an amends, doing this sort of introspection into our past behavior is so important. And uh, it was one of the things that I had to do especially with respect to my wife. My drinking and driving was a big deal during the time that I was an active drinker. <clears throat> my wife would constantly nag me about drinking and driving. Uh, I was one of the fortunate ones who never had a serious incident behind the wheel. A couple of minor fender benders uh, that were not even worth noting as having anything to do with drugs or alcohol. And perhaps that gave me the impression to some degree that, well, I drove better when I was under the influence. But no, when I came into the rooms and, and when I did in 2009, I had also come to a reckoning that it wasn't so much a matter of if I could wind up having a terrible accident. It's a matter of when. And Something else I didn't mention with regard to my last drunk when I was driving pretty much blinded like this, 
one thing I didn't mention was the fact that there was a news report about a woman who had wound, who had wound up killing herself, seven or eight other people on the Tacoma Parkway here in New York State. And within a couple of weeks after that, there was another report of a woman who was driving with a nine-year-old girl in the car with her. Kid's name was uh, Leandra. And from that, we have what's called Leandra's Law, which states that if you are caught driving under the influence with a minor child in the car, you're going to face all the more harsh consequences as a result of being stopped while you're driving inebriated with that kid, that nine-year-old child, that minor child in the car with you. So uh, these are things also that, that gave me pause and caused me to recognize it. Well, you know, uh, it's time to get smart here. Yeah. yeah, that was part of the impetus of me going into rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at my first meeting back in August of 2009. Um, wow, it looks like my time's about winding down here. Uh, I think I've covered pretty much a great deal of the basis here related to what happened to me in terms of alcohol and why I wound up coming into the rooms. Yeah, I pretty much give you the whole gamut of my drinking career to a great extent. I'm, I'm pretty much going to wrap this up here. But uh, see, that's about all I got. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers online group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker one after another from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us.